Boy, I haven't been in this seat in a while. It's kind of fun. But I'm not preaching today, so I, I can. I said I'd take this one. We don't have a particularly happy topic to talk about today, um, which sometimes happens in church history. But uh, we are going to be talking today about the effect in the church of Enlightenment thinking and how that has had an effect uh, on. Uh, and how historically that's had an effect on on the gospel, and especially in how that's affected the American church. So uh, we're going to be, if you didn't get a handout, this would be one where a handout would probably be helpful. Um, So we're looking at the time period of 1750 to 1850, and the title of this uh, is The Church in a Changing World. So Enlightenment Thinking and Its Fruits. So, interestingly, uh, I think uh, a verse that's very apropos to this would be Colossians 2, 8, and 9, which I put on your handout. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And we see here that Paul is contrasting the philosophy and the deceitful philosophies of the world uh, and the human traditions of the world to Christ uh, and how and calling us to hold fast to Christ even when the world and its philosophies would tell us uh, to depart and abandon him. Um, the fallen wisdom of the world would lead us away from Jesus, and we have to resist that tendency. So last week, we traced the forerunners of what we call evangelicalism in the lives and ministries of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and we looked at the Great Awakening. Uh, this morning, we want to track, track the dramatic shift that occurred from eight, 1750 to 1850 that affected the human understanding of the whole world, the whole concept of the world, and affected Protestant Christianity in the U.S. in particular. So I want to accomplish this by looking at the Enlightenment and the responses uh, of within the church to the shifting in thought. The major event in American history that was shaped by the Enlightenment was the American Revolution. And we're going to see uh, strands of Enlightenment thinking going through that. Uh, but religiously, there was a significant shift during this period also in the beginnings of Protestant liberalism. And when I say liberalism there, I'm talking about religious liberalism, not political liberalism. The beginnings of Protestant liberalism and the expansion of evangelicalism through revivalism. All right, so there's all a bunch of terms. We'll, we'll talk about what they all mean. But first off, what's the Enlightenment? What's the Enlightenment? Well, the Enlightenment was an intellectual movement that has its roots all the way back. Uh, it has some roots all the way back to the, uh, the Renaissance, but it also has roots in uh, more coming down from there. In, in the philosopher Descartes was kind of the beginnings of, of, uh, of this, uh, this push toward this thinking of a more rationalistic approach to thinking about the great problems of humankind. The Enlightenment was an, an intellectual movement that stressed reason as the way to truth. So the big idea, if you want the enlightenment in one big idea, it's that reason is the way to truth. But it also stressed a world based on perfectly ordered natural laws and a self-confident and optimistic belief in human ability to make progress. 
So a, a, a pretty a, a very robust sense of the of the ability of the human creature and the human mind to arrive at truth. Now, can any of you think of what might be a, a way that that's that that might be a direction that could take us in a wrong direction? So you could be looking at the more worldly aspect of truth rather than focusing on God. Yeah, thanks. Larry? Higher criticism criticism is one of the results. Higher criticism is where you come to the Bible with your your scientific phenomenon and and, and your scientific tools and you examine it. Martha? Uh, There's a lot of things in the Bible which exist in tension and that are difficult to understand. So if you think the reason is the way to get the truth, if you can't understand them, that must mean the Bible is wrong. Right. Yes, it's going to affect your ability. Of un- the Bible deals in paradoxes sometimes. And if your reason can't put two ideas that the Bible puts together, if your reason can't put them together, you're going to say, well, my reason is going to trump. Really what it is, is, is my mind going to trump the authority of God's word? And is where ultimately this is a crisis of authority. What's going to be the authority and the arbiter of truth? Is it going to be my mind, or is it going to be something external to me? And we know from from the scriptures that our the arbiter of truth for us is to be the Word of God. So if my mind and 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 this idea of an optimistic view of the human mind to be able to discover truth, well, there's a problem because our human minds are twisted by by our depravity, by sin. Our minds don't work right anymore. Um, so this, is, this was a little naive if you think about it from the Bible's perspective. But nonetheless, stressed reason is the way to truth. That's the basic understanding of the Enlightenment. I know, and I'm going to, obviously, I'm going to be making big generalizations. Not everything I'm going to say is going to apply to every Enlightenment thinker. Uh, you know, I'm going to be painting in broad brushstrokes, right? All right, so to put it simply, this was a shift in the way that humans understood the world around them and their role in the world. Some of the thinkers that are representatives of the new Enlightenment thinking would be the scientist Isaac Newton. There we go. Isaac Newton, he's on the right, and going from right from left to right, sorry, left, going from left to right, the philosophers John Locke, David Hume, and Voltaire. Those would be some of the big thinkers of the Enlightenment movement. And these thinkers share the common idea that humans have the ability to rightly understand the world and the ability to transform the world. Enlightenment thinkers, therefore, believe that the basic ideas of religion could be derived from reason alone. I can start with my reason, and I can correctly identify the fundamental building blocks of religion. Organized religion serves only to promote morality and virtue. So the starting point is me. Now, in Catholicism, the starting point, arguably, is the church. And in, in our worldview, the starting point of our thinking is the Bible. But for the Enlightenment thinker, I'm the starting point. Religion is embedded in nature, and unaided reason can determine its major tenets. Hence, the idea is that, that religion is rational, or ought to be, rational and natural. Enlightenment thinkers understood three essential religious ideas. Next slide. Number one, influenced by Newton's, Sir Isaac Newton's more mechanistic view of the universe. 
Enlightenment thinkers suggest that God is chiefly a great designer who creates the world and provides for its natural laws for its perpetual motion. So it goes on and on and on according to the, the laws that the designer creator God established. Depending on who you're talking to, that creator God is more or less involved in the, the working out of the creation. Second, people everywhere experience a sense of obligation or ethical demands toward neighbors and our conscience. Therefore, that's a natural, reasonable understanding of, of that universal understanding. And therefore, third, because of this sense of right and wrong, it's reasonable to conclude that there will be an afterlife in which we will be rewarded or punished. So there was an attempt to reduce religion to its simplest and most prominent features. These are the things that... And it is interesting that if you look at Romans 1, it says that the things that can be known about God without, without supernatural revelation just from what, how God has created us and how he's put our consciousness into the world, I maintain that that you could boil down to, there is a God, he is righteous and good, he created me, and therefore I'm accountable to him. So these are, are the, are, those have some similarities to these ideas that come from the Enlightenment. So it's not, it's, it's not like it's totally out of whack. Yes, there are self-evident truths, because God's made us, and he's put those into our, our, uh, our building blocks. But religious teachings of the Enlightenment challenged traditional Christianity at several points. Here are some of those points. Up to this point, in classic Protestantism, the word of God had been considered the authority. And to the Enlightenment thinker, reason is the primary source of authority and knowledge. Number two, God is creator... But the doctrine of the Trinity, most of them would deem to be contrary to reason, the idea that there's three persons and one God, that's contrary to reason. There we go with Martha's idea. There's, there's ideas that are in tension in the scripture. God is three and God is one. Well, my reason says I can't put those together, so I'm going to abandon the idea of a Trinity. Therefore, the Trinity must be abandoned, and the notion of the active providence of God, God's active working in the world, was also diminished. It changed how people thought about Jesus. Jesus taught the ethical norm that Christians should follow, but his divinity must be rejected, since the idea that he is fully God and fully man is contrary to reason and experience. Atonement, therefore, comes through the moral influence of the teachings and deeds of Jesus, not by God requiring the payment of death, a substitute death, uh, for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' ethical teachings began to be heightened. Of course, we ought to also heighten, you know, we ought to hold the ethical teachings in the highest regard. But that was at the expense of the idea of the atonement and the nature of Jesus as the God-man. Number four, because of a strong belief in the natural process of cause and effect, they generally rejected miracles because those are interruptions of natural law. And so they were considered to be impossible. Number five, Enlightenment religion provided an alternative to Calvinism. This is specifically how it affected American Protestantism. It began with the assumption of the free human will, and that challenged the traditional reformed teaching of original sin, particular redemption, and predestination. So Calvinism was widely modified or abandoned by Protestants in America in the 19th century, meaning the 1800s. The 1800s, you're going to see Calvinism become, from the more kind of a dominant worldview, 
to essentially largely abandoned by the end of the, the, 19, the 1800s. Now, one event at the end of the 18th century, the 1700s, occurred during this time, and that was the American Revolution and the founding of the American Republic. All right, I do not want to spend too much time here, because, but we'll take a little time, because there's a tendency to look back at the founders either as a source of a secular utopia or, alternately, almost the polar opposite, some people look back to it as the golden age of Christian statesmanship. We do ought to be careful if we would try to use history as ammunition for various present-day agendas. So one hot question asked by many Christians is, was the United States founded as a Christian nation? And I want to suggest to you that's not really the right question. See, Christians start off with their understanding from God's revelation in his word. That's our basis. Taken as a whole, if we look at the whole realm of scripture, we see that it was never God's desire to see any nation state established in the new covenant. There's no new covenant equivalent of Israel as a nation on, as, as a nation on earth. Like there's not an America that's the new Israel. There's not a Britain that's the new Israel that's designed to be the, the God's nation, God's anointed nation on earth. That's not how the new covenant works. Rather, his people, his nation, the church, would be of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's a theological assessment of the question. Was the USS founded as a Christian nation? And the answer is, you know, that's not really possible in the new covenant. Now, I understand if you want to ask me more questions, we're not going to stop there. You can ask me more questions of that later. Of course, there would still be those who would want to try and put the American founding leaders into neat boxes as Christian or deist. And again, that might be a little too simplistic, you know, taken as a whole. So Greg Fraser, who's a professor at the Master's College in California, recently offered a thesis that draws a kind of middle ground between the two called theistic rationalism. Theistic rationalism. And Fraser argues first that the founders were a group of people whose belief systems were actually pretty diverse and varied, but a uniting factor in their religious belief that you could unite someone who was a true deist with someone who was a, a, an observant, faithful Christian, they kind of all had a similar idea of theistic rationalism. And the the main founders and many others were products of the Enlightenment. They came from a lot of this Enlightenment thinking, which means they had an extremely high view of of human ability and reason. But they also came from a time where the larger society was was at least nominally Christian. So, So Professor Fraser defines theistic rationalism as a hybrid system mixing elements of natural religion Christianity and rationalism with rationalism as the predominant element. Again, this idea that the human mind, the human reason. So it should not be surprising that, the, uh, that a founder, if he's writing, whether it's someone writing a treatise or you know, Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence, would use language that would sound very Protestant. But that wouldn't, it would be a mistake that to then use that as a sign that they would have had saving faith. And in fact, I'd argue that these men were also politicians who knew the consequences of their words and to the extent that they used their language to to influence people, they would use 
the terms that people were familiar with. So their language of rights and self-evident truths given by God and other ideas that we're familiar with from, that, from our history books, uh, that, exp- that exploded Enlightenment ideas in a very, to a very popular level. Now, how did Christians respond to these Enlightenment ideas in the United States? Well, the United States and more broadly, because there's a whole, that, you know, that's, a, that's one way in which Enlightenment thinking and Enlightenment theology influenced America. But then there's this, also this big trend that was on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, so I already said that the Enlightenment brought many challenges for Christianity. Uh, and one unfortunate thing was that some responded to Enlightenment thinking by surrendering great areas of the faith. We're going to look at two individuals who were significantly influential. Friedrich Schleiermacher, that's the guy on the left, he's called by many the father of modern Protestant theology. J.I. Packer calls him the demon king of Protestant liberalism. So obviously, depending on on who you're you're talking to. uh, So um, he is, if you will, the one whose ideas kind of form the basis for all sorts of bad things that came from it. A lot started. Now, here's, here's how he saw the world. He was troubled. So the Enlightenment's coming along, and it's saying, Christian doctrines aren't rational. Trinity, God-man, this stuff, miracles, this isn't rational. So, so more, more explicit unbelievers were saying, we can't really, our rationalism doesn't allow us to embrace, the, you know, Christianity. Schleiermacher essentially conceded that point. And so he had to reformulate Christianity on a non-rational, a non-rational kind of basis. So Schleiermacher argued that Doctrine and historical evidence don't matter very much, and that the true essence of Christianity was, quote, a feeling of absolute dependence on God. So the essence of religion, he said, is a feeling of absolute dependence on God. Why would it be a feeling? Well, because if the mind can't get to the truths of Christianity, if we can't accept them as rational, then what, what are we left with? Well, we're left with our, our heart and our feelings. So depend, developing this idea, Schleiermacher argued, number one, God is that on which we feel dependent. So what is God? He's the one on whom we feel dependent. Number two, sin. Here's what sin is. Sin is a failure of our sense of dependence. Number three, who's Jesus? Jesus is the man who was utterly dependent upon God in every thought, word, and action. I agree. I just think there's more to it. (laughs) Number four, this dependence added up to an existence of God in Jesus. So his utter dependence on God was kind of the thing that actually made God present within him. So his divinity has, has more of an effect of his relationship to God than who he was. Yes? I don't know. I, I, I would have to delve more deeply again. I've studied him. Uh, I have not studied him in a while. So um, would he have said... I, I doubt he would have said 
I'm not sure you would have said Jesus is not God, but he would locate the idea of his divinity much more in his active dependence on God. So it's so basically religion becomes only relational and emotional and affectional and it leaves out the 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 rational understanding of truth. So he's reacting to the fact that people are saying Christianity isn't rational and he's saying it doesn't have to be. It's it's more about my experience and Jesus experience of God. And you can see how that kind of thinking you can see where this is going. Right? If it's not about whether it's true, it's what I feel about it. Well, there's lots of people in our, among our neighbors who, who hold to... You, you can see where it, where it goes. All right, Christ's mission, number five, Christ's mission was to communicate this sense of dependence to others. Right? It wasn't to die on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The essence of his mission was to communicate the dependence upon God that he himself had to others. This legacy persists in some areas of the church which emphasize emotion and experience over the knowledge of the truth of the living God. Now, a biblical response to this would be to say that our feelings are a wonderful gift from God and they're an important part of who we are. But they must always submit to the objective work of Christ on the cross, the objective truthfulness of God in our lives and his word. Also, historical truth matters. What does Paul say? Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, what, what's, what, what happens if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? We should all give up, right? It, you know, and you know, Schleiermacher would say, well, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. The question is, how do I feel about the idea that Jesus rose from the dead? You know? And Paul says, no, that doesn't make any sense. If, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is vain and we're all a bunch of suckers. Right? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it wouldn't matter whether we felt like he did or not. But Schleiermacher is saying the experience, our experience and our, and our emotional understanding of these things is what's really important. So hence, the epithet from J.I. Packer, the demon king of Protestant liberalism. Because his ideas then just got, take, got taken up and developed by others. Uh, so the guy on the left, Soren, or the guy on the right, I'm a teacher, I still confuse my left and my right. Soren Kierkegaard, the, who is a Danish philosopher, he grew troubled with the established church and the Enlightenment rationalism around him. So he just downplayed both, both doctrine and morality. He held to radical free will and radical faith. He defined the essence of Christianity to be radical free will and radical faith. So he developed the idea of Christian ex- existentialism. Existentialism being the idea that my existence precedes my essence and I define my reality and I define my meaning. So he developed a Christian version of this based on my radical free will, my radical faith. So he emphasized the individual's own subjective search for meaning, but he located it within the Christian, the broadly Christian worldview. Each person needs to make a leap of faith toward God even when the leap seems to have no basis in fact or objective truth. So pretty similar to... But different, but so it concedes so much, too much thought to rationalism, leaves too little to the church, and it risks leaving people wallowing in 
existential angst. <laughs> so, the Enlightenment says it's rational, it's empirical. If you can't reason it, it can't be true. Schleiermacher takes that and says, essentially, it doesn't really matter if it's quite true. How we respond to it is what matters, which undercuts biblical authority, which undercuts the, the objective nature of what Jesus was, who he was, and what he did. And what happens is, you, if, you, if you go down this path, this is what happens. You start off retaining... Some people are going to reject the authority of the Bible, but they're going to retain objective. They're going to retain Christian doctrine and they're going to retain Christian morality. And this is what you began to see. The first people undercut the idea of, of the Bible's authority, undercut the idea of the truthfulness of it, but maintained a lot of the doctrines and maintained the morality. The next generation jettisoned the theology but kept the morality. So that you know, the second generation takes the idea that the, if the if the truth isn't isn't really true, then who cares about the doctrine? But let's keep the morality. Well, then the third generation comes along and says, "Well, if the truth isn't there and the doctrine isn't there, who cares about the morality?" So this is what would happen over the course of time. This is how these ideas began to show themselves over generations. So Schleiermacher might not have said Jesus isn't God, but he paved the way for someone two generations down the road to say There's no, Jesus isn't God. Another response, next slide, was Scottish common sense realism. And a number of Christian thinkers, many of them centered at Princeton, held fast to the true faith in the face of these challenges. And in the 18th century, the guy on the left, John Witherspoon, who signed the Declaration of Independence, he was a Presbyterian minister who was president of Princeton. Now, Princeton is the last of the Ivy Leagues to maintain, um, to maintain biblical faithfulness. Harvard and Yale and, uh, went off very quickly. But Princeton actually re- remained fairly, fairly uh, faithful to the gospel until the end of the... Uh, 19th century, the end of the 1800s, beginning of the, and the, of the um, 20th century. And then they, then they went, went off. And Westminster Seminary was founded as a result. All right, John Witherspoon, president of Princeton, he, came, he uh, imported from Scotland, and he helped plant in America this, the system of philosophy called Scottish common sense realism. By common, he meant universal. By sense, he meant rational experience, so common sense realism. And it shared some of the Enlightenment's confidence in human reason, but it appealed to the universal experience to reinforce the truth of Christianity. So it really would have put a lot of, of, a lot of weight on Romans 1, saying, yes, we actually all know that this is true. Our consciences tell us that there's a God, and our consciences tell us there's morality. But these guys used that to reinforce the truth rather than reject the truth. So Witherspoon and others contended that a plain look at the world would reveal the existence of God and a universal moral code. And if a plain reading of the Bible would demonstrate the truth of Christ and the need of salvation. So he said if we use these tools, they're actually going to lead us to faithfulness rather than away from faithfulness. So in the 19th century, other theologians at Princeton Seminary eagerly and ably defended historic Christianity 
from the assault of rationalism and other Enlightenment philosophies. So the guys on this side, Archibald Alexander, he was uh, one of the seminary's first professors. His student, Charles Hodge, who wrote an excellent systematic theology, he would preach at Princeton for half a century. And the guy on the right, who I think we can all agree has a wonderful beard, um, B.B. Warfield, they, re, they balanced a fervent commitment to the Reformed faith with an active engagement with into the intellectual challenges to Christianity. So they weren't afraid to reason. They, they, they didn't think Christianity wasn't rational. They thought it was rational and that our reason could help us you know, understand the truthfulness of the Bible. Princeton theologians advocated Reformed confessionalism, classic Reformed theology, And uh, Charles Hodge famously said, a new idea never originated in this seminary. Uh, You know, epitomizing their claim to be a bearer of the unbroken and unaltered faith. Um, I'm going to skip some of that. Um, Warfield, on the the right-hand side, he adamantly opposed... He took biblical criticism, which Larry said, which is when you look at the Bible and you actually try and figure out how does it work and and where did it come from and what were the source materials and things like that. And he opposed criticism that was predicated on naturalistic principles, but he did actually seek to use the tools of the time uh, to defend the Bible. He believed that modern scholarship, though, was distorting Christianity's essence because it was denying supernaturalism. It was saying there isn't any supernatural and therefore that it was going off very quickly. He said, no, we've got to keep our understanding of the supernatural. The Bible tells us that that's the case. And under that premises, we're going to find the Bible's true. So Princeton's defense of Scripture relied heavily on the principles of Scottish common-sense philosophy. And its apologists decided or proposed that they could refute secularism, which was this increasing idea that, you know, throw off all aspects of Christianity, They thought they could establish God's existence and the scripture's truthfulness and its authority and its authenticity and the nature and necessity of biblical religion. Now, critics of this school, people who are a little critical of their approach, have pointed out that Princeton's failure to recognize the a-religious nature of scientism, of empiricism, and the... and the idea that our fallen human minds and our fallen human hearts, when we use our reason, we don't want God with our natural human reason. And so it probably still trusted too much in the ability of our minds and hearts to, to lead us in good directions. But usually Princeton theologians still evaluated philosophy in this more rationalistic way through the lens of biblical revelation. If that's going over your head, don't, don't, it's, it's complicated. Basically, they, were, they still wanted to use some of the Enlightenment's ideas, but they wanted it to defend Christianity. Now, all right, where are we going? Let's look at the second great awakening. Yes, Josiah. It has good effects. Yeah, so, like, where do we... The scientific method comes from it. Right, so, you know, as we see society kind of swinging away from both of those, right, um, is, there, is there any legacy to the Enlightenment that we, like, as Christians should be holding to? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think that what they, what they still held to 
was the concept of objective truth, largely. Even if they thought it wasn't important for, for religion, if you will. But the idea that there was still a truth to be found is now what is being jettisoned, right? So a modernistic understanding, which held sway until, the, until probably around the time when some of us were born, um, um, we were still kind of largely in a modernist school of thought. And that, uh, that still holds that truth can be found and determined. Uh, that's, that's still helpful. And in many ways, that's, you know, that's the basis and the foundation for our, for, for our science. Uh, so when you use that to say, and that's how I'm going to figure out God, is where it goes off the rails. But in terms of how it, how it reveals about any number of things in God's world, it's still a very good thing. So, yeah. You know, the scientific method is better than alchemy. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know yeah. so there's nothing, it's not that empiricism is all bad. All right, let's look at its effect on American public religion in the Second Great Awakening. There we go. What's that a picture of? You know what that is? Oh, you're all not... A camp meeting. It's a camp meeting. How many of you have been to a camp meeting? Yeah, some of you. Yeah, okay. So many American Christians responded to the doubts of the Enlightenment and the spiritual depression after the Revolution. So after the Revolution, the late 1700s, very dry time speak in the U.S. They went out, many Christians decided that the thing to do was to go out and preach the simple gospel message. They just charged out, began preaching the gospel in every corner of the new nation and beyond. So from about 1795 into the first decades of the 1800s, there was this tremendous series of revivals known as the Second Great Awakening. Most of the Second Great Awakening took place in towns, villages, and camps in America rather than the cities, and particularly more toward the frontier as, the, as America and its people and its, you know, were pushing west. So denominational distinctives also began to blur because Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists would all get together to preach in these huge outdoor tent revivals. So Cane Ridge, Kentucky was the site of one such legendary camp meeting in 1801. Up to 25,000 people converged in the fields of the town over a period of weeks to hear numerous preachers proclaim the gospel. And many people were converted. But... By some measures, the enthusiasm, and we saw this in the First Great Awakening too, the enthusiasm sometimes would become excessive as the physical effects of deep spiritual emotion began to be emphasized, like bodily convulsions, laughing, hysterical noises took over some participants, including apparently something called the barking exercise, in which new converts like hunting dogs would bark until they scared the devil up a tree. Sigh. For better or for worse, Cane Ridge marked the beginning of decades of revival camp meetings in the new country. Some of it plainly of the spirit, other things much more suspect. So, last week we walked through the first Great Awakening. We're going to do a little comparison to the first Great Awakening and the second. It's, it's worth talking about what they were diff- how they were different and how they were the same. Both of them, first Great Awakening, second Great Awakening, driven by a desire to see people saved. Both of them, not just in, one, on, on just in America, but both in Europe and in America, so they were international and uh, 
you know, and as you get later on, either, well, no, actually, I'm thinking that's a little later. Uh, there were some differences as well, and you can see where Enlightenment thought was beginning to creep in uh, in the Second Great Awakening. So in the First Great Awakening, with Edwards and Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant, there was the idea of God's controlling will being determinative in salvation. Now, the idea of monergism, that we're saved, you know, as John 1 says, uh, people are saved not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. Right? It's God's initiative in God's saving grace, sovereign grace, to save sinners. So if man is dead in transgressions and sins, God has to be the one to work. That's a, essentially basic, reformed, Calvinistic theology. In the second Great Awakening, you have this Enlightenment idea that the human mind is much more capable. The human mind is actually able to reason. The human mind is able to to actually understand truth. So there was this idea that God and man had to cooperate in salvation. Man could look at the offer of God's saving grace, and he could decide, he could decide, he had the ability to decide to accept it or reject it. There was significant backlash against Calvinism that says, no, the human mind in sin, dead in sin, will never choose Christ until God acts upon that will. They thought, no, someone's either able to decide to follow Jesus or not able to follow Jesus. So there was a significant backlash against Calvinism. But it wasn't just a theological difference. There, were, there was a movement away from the, from the churches a little bit and more into like missionary societies, a lot of non-church missionary societies. It's neither necessarily good nor bad. It's just a difference. It was moving, religion was kind of coming out of the churches and a little bit more towards, you know, things like this or things like mission societies. Uh, we want to talk especially about the theology and the practice of revivalism. So next, next slide. So over here we've got Francis Asbury. He was a Methodist sent, I think, over by John Wesley to the United States. Yeah, he answered Wesley's call to spread the gospel in, in the United States. And he was distressed to find that so many Methodist preachers in America had settled in one location, mostly in the cities. And he's like, no, we've got to get out there. So he set out immediately to prod Methodist ministers into circulation which is where we get the circuit rider. That's the guy in the middle who's carrying his umbrella and riding his horse because he's going from one little town to the next little town to the next little town preaching the gospel. Methodists still have a rotating pulpit. You don't stay, and a preacher doesn't stay. It's not like here where BJ and I are here at RGC until the Lord calls us elsewhere. The Methodists, you move on from one pastor to another. So he himself spent 45 years preaching through the U.S. and traveled over 300,000 miles on horseback and crossed the Appalachians 60 times. Guy on the right, Charles Finney. He's the best-known revivalist of the 1800s. He wanted to see evangelism and conversion bearing fruit in society, and he used his platform to work on abolishing slavery, promoting temperance, temperance from alcohol, caring for the poor, and promoting education. Kudos on that front. But unfortunately, he had a seriously flawed theology and seriously flawed evangelistic methods. He had a low view of sin and its ability to hold the sinner in captivity to sin. He had a high view of humanity. Man can choose God on his own. So Finney seems to have believed that everyone has that capacity 
Maybe, maybe, every, maybe like Wesley believed, everyone first is given grace to restore his ability to choose. But now everyone has the ability just to either choose God or not choose God. And so his evangelistic methods were based on that. He's trying to convince people to choose God. So his new measures, he, he, said by, he thought by setting the proper atmosphere, using the right methods, using the right tools, you could persuade someone to convert. And one famous method was called the anxious bench, which, which was where you came, to, you came to, to spend time considering the state of your soul. That kind of led to, it's kind of the precursor to the altar call. Previous evangelists had left the timing of conversion to God. Preach the gospel, let God wrestle with the sinner. And the sinner wrestle with God. Finney called for conversion now. Now, actually, there's, there's something profoundly good in that. If I don't preach the gospel and call sinners to instantly, in this moment, come to Jesus, I think that, I'm, I think that I've missed the mark. But my ability to uh, call them to, my desire to manipulate the circumstances so that they will do so or make some response, I think is very much off base. Here was something that Finney said. And you're going to have to take two ideas and hold them together because it's not... It's, Here's something he said, and it sounds very troubling. It's less troubling than it initially sounds, but still pretty bad. He said, a revival of religion, a revival of religion is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It's a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means, as much so as any other effect produced by the application of means. Cause, effect. You put the right circumstances in play, revival will result. Now that sounds, here's, let me, let me buffer that. I said that revival is the result of the right use of appropriate means. The means which God has enjoined for the production of a revival doubtless have a natural tendency to produce a revival. Otherwise, God would not have enjoined them. But means will not produce a revival, we all know, without the blessing of God. No more will grain, when it is sowed, produce a crop without the blessing of God. It is impossible for us to say that there is not as direct influence or agency from God to produce a crop of grain as there is to produce a revival. But he did still see it in this kind of more mechanistic way. If a farmer goes out and, under the blessing of God, plants the seed, waters the seed, fertilizes the seed, what will happen? It'll grow. And he thought revival worked very similarly. You do what God has prescribed, revival will result. And, that, and whereas we would say, no, that's really a miraculous work of God. And he's sovereign over whether that will happen, as he's sovereign in, the, in any individual sinner coming to Christ. So, unfortunately, a lot of a bad fruit from, from Finney's work, but he did desire people to know Jesus. So despite these errors and excesses in the Second Great Awakening, countless faithful pastors and itinerant evangelists were laboring throughout the U.S. to preach the gospel, and the Lord did use them to draw many to the kingdom. An excellent book. Excellent book. Primary source from the Second Great Awakening. I would encourage you to get it, and I have it in my library, and I gave it to BJ when I first came here. was Ichabod Spencer's A Pastor's Sketches. And it's, he basically is going, as, as he ministered the gospel, he tells story after story. He just tells people stories of how he preached the gospel and how he talked with people and how he had evangelistic conversations and what happened. Really fascinating 
Super easy to read, really helpful. If you're looking for how to have better gospel conversations, you could, you could, I would encourage you. Ichabod Spencer's a Pastor's Sketches. All right, so by 1850, Christianity in America had changed significantly. The Second Great Awakening had brought Christian revival to the nation, but it looked different than it had in the First Great Awakening because it was, had a higher view of man, a lower view of sin would be an, an, a greater ability of the person to rationally choose God. All right. We also seen, you also saw a shift in churches. First, Anglicans and Congregationalists had been the largest denominations. By the end of the Second Great Awakening, it was now Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians. Many were wrestling with the challenges of modern thought. All sorts of bad ideas were coming down the pike uh, from liberal theologians that would bear more bad fruit later on. Um, but many people were, were remaining faithful to the authority of Scripture alone and pursuing and worshiping God. So, as always, God preserves his church, even though a bunch of weird stuff was happening and would continue to happen. So, all right. We, I am right up to time. A minute for questions? Questions? Yeah, Andrew. How do you view uh, the influence of enlightenment thinking on the way that we think about apologetics now. So, like, if you've ever read John Locke's The Reasonableness of Christianity, mm-hmm. that seems like the genesis of sort of modern apologetic, mm-hmm. Christian apologetic thought. Yeah, I would go back to the apologetic... I would refer you to the apologetics course that we we did in the last course seminar, where basically I said, here's what apologetics can and can't do. It can't convince the unconverted mind of the truthfulness of the gospel such that they can be saved. But it can eliminate barriers. As we demonstrate its reasonableness, that allows for barriers against the gospel to be removed, but it cannot engender faith, such that we can reason someone into Christianity. Good question. All right, let's wrap it up. Father in heaven, thank you for my friends here who are interested in hearing more about how you've worked in history and how come to understand how we uh, are at the moment that we're at now um, and uh, so that we can be more uh, able to be faithful now. now. That's really our main goal. We want to be faithful and live faithfully for you now. Help us to understand and be able to sift through ideas that are good and bad and some ideas that are even a mixture of good and bad. Uh, Lord, help us to be a faithful church and faithful individual believers. We pray these things in his name. Amen.